You're tuned in to another episode of Aminder. Today, we'll talk all about different ways that synaptic transmission may be affected in Alzheimer's disease with six research papers that use either cell models, animal models, or human patients. Stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hi, and welcome back to Aminder. It's been a little while since we last had an episode, as we've had an extended break since our July 2020 series. But now the show's back for the next couple of weeks to bring you papers published in, all, in August 2022. Our team of volunteers consists of PhD students, medical students, postdocs, and undergraduates. And as you may imagine, this season is a really busy time for us. So this series is going to be a small one with just five episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks. Today, you're with me, Ellen Kosh, and I'm subbing for Anusha Kamesh this month who usually hosts today's episode covering papers published about synaptic transmission in Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, you'll hear me refer to Alzheimer's disease as AD throughout the episode today. In this month's series, you'll also hear from Cassie about apolipoprotein E, from Ellen R, the other Ellen on the team, about vascular changes in AD, from Judy, who will tell you about cognitive and behavioral changes, and from Nyla, who will tell you all about prevention strategies for AD. So... That's quite a variety of episodes presented to you all by our seasoned hosts here at Aminder. And if you have a little bit of spare time and are interested in getting involved with our podcast, we are always recruiting volunteers. And right now we're especially looking for people with expertise in neuroscience and or in Alzheimer's disease to help with summarizing abstracts and potentially hosting episodes. We're also looking for help with marketing and external operations such as things like reaching out to potential sponsors and funding opportunities for the podcast. However, if your interests in volunteering are outside of these areas and you want to help with things like creating bibliographies or audio editing, feel free to reach out as well because we have room for you on the team there as well. And uh, of course, if you're not sure what you want to help with, we're also happy to chat with you and see where you'd fit best. (sighs) Okay, anyways, let's get on with today's show. We only have six papers to cover this time, so it'll be a quick one. Remember that if you want to check out any of the papers mentioned in today's episode in more detail, you can find the link to the bibliography in the show notes or on our website. I'm only going to be giving you a quick overview of each paper's abstract, so it's up to you to read the papers in more detail. We'll start with three papers that investigate signaling in the cortex using rodent models. Paper number one is published in the Journal of Neurochemistry by first author Orsiani and last author Quello. The title is Long-Term Nucleus Bacillus Cholinergic Depletion Induces Attentional Deficits and Impacts Cortical Neurons and BDNF Levels Without Affecting the NGF Synthesis. And the authors of this one are based out of uh, McGill University and Oxford University. In this study, the authors were interested in the role of cholinergic inputs from basal forebrain to the cortex in Alzheimer's disease progression. 
These inputs are the main source of acetylcholine to both the cortex and to the hippocampus, and have been shown to degenerate in AD, hence why treatments targeting cholinergic signaling are currently used as treatments for AD symptoms. These authors specifically explored how lesioning the cholinergic inputs would affect levels of mature nerve growth factor, which I'll be calling NGF, and brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. Two-and-a-half-month-old Wistar rats were given a bilateral lesion of the nucleus bacillus, which is one of the basal forebrain cholinergic nuclei. Six months later, these rats showed impairment on a five-choice serial reaction task, a test of executive functions such as attention and impulse control. Upon looking at their brains post-mortem, they found reduced cholinergic boutons in the cortex, along with reduced BDNF, mRNA, and protein levels, and reduced markers for glutamatergic and GABAergic neurons. All of this compared to controls. Interestingly, NGF precursor and mature protein levels were not changed in these rats. The conclusion is that cholinergic inputs from the nucleus basalis are important for maintaining BDNF levels, overall neuron health, and cognitive task performance, but these neurons do not seem to regulate levels of NGF. Moving on, paper number two explores cortical neurons and their relationship to emotional regulation. The title is Prefrontal Parvalbumin Interneurons Deficits Mediate Early Emotional Dysfunction in Alzheimer's Disease. The first author of this one is Xu, and the last author is Xu or Zhu, and sorry, I don't, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, but it's spelled X-U. And these researchers come from institutions in Nanjing, China. This paper is published in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. In this paper, the authors used electrophysiology to look at the firing of prefrontal parvalbumin neurons in AD mice. They are particularly interested in characterizing very early stages when medical intervention could hypothetically be the most impactful. In APPPS1 mice, so this is an Alzheimer's model, at 9 to 11 weeks of age, they found an excitatory inhibitory imbalance in the prefrontal cortex, associated with a reduction in the number and the activity of parvalbumin interneurons. Activating these neurons using either optogenetic or chemogenetic methods reduced depressive-like behavior and memory deficits in these mice. This suggests that prefrontal parvalbumin neurons are affected early in AD and contribute to symptoms, and thus these neurons may warrant further study in the future. The third paper of today's episode is up next, titled Urokinase Type Plasminogen Activator Triggers Wingless Int1 Independent Phosphorylation of the Low-Density Lipoprotein Receptor-Related Protein 6 in Cerebral Cortical Neurons. That was a lot, but I think I did a pretty good job with that. The first author is Diaz, and the last author is Yipes or Yepes, and they are based in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. This study focuses on a proteinase called urokinase type plasminogen activator that is involved in the formation and the repair of synapses. I'll be referring to this proteinase as UPA. Prior to this study, the authors report that UPA levels are decreased in AD patients. Here, they use mouse cortical cell cultures and a neuroblastoma cell line transfected with the APP695AD mutation. They also use cells from mice with deficient plasminogen, UPA, or UPA receptors. 
As for their results, they report that UPA activates the WNT-beta-catenin pathway, and that this activation can protect the synapse against soluble amyloid beta or A-beta. It also may suppress the expression of beta-secretase 1, also known as BASE-1, thereby reducing formation of harmful A-beta-40 and 42 peptides. All in all, the researchers' results suggest the role of UPA in protecting the synapse against pathological changes in AD, and perhaps this one day could be a target of drug therapy for the disease. Check out the paper for all the nitty-gritty details. Our next paper describes a new model that could be useful in in studying Alzheimer's disease pathology. The authors are Marquez, Pinheiro, and Justino out of Lisboa, Portugal, and this is published in STAR Protocols. The title is Optimized Protocol for Obtaining and Characterizing Primary Neuron-Enriched Cultures from Embryonic Chicken Brains. And this one is short and sweet. These researchers created a new protocol for obtaining primary neuron-enriched cultures from embryonic chicken brains. They argue that chicken brains are a great model for studying AD because of the homology between amyloid precursor protein processing in humans and chickens. They suggest this is a good alternative to rodent models and probably cheaper too as their protocol doesn't require an animal facility. The last two papers of the episode are studies done in humans, both characterizing potential new fluid biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, if you're interested in fluid biomarkers, so biomarkers in things like cerebrospinal fluid or the blood, there is a bibliography that we publish every month that summarizes all of the research from that month on fluid biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. Make sure you check that out. You can find the link to all of our bibliographies since 2020 in the show notes or on our website. The first of our biomarker papers looks at a biomarker in the cerebrospinal fluid. Paper number five is called Combined Effects of Synaptic and Exonal Integrity on Longitudinal Gray Matter Atrophy in Cognitively Unimpaired Adults. This is published in the journal Neurology by first author Saloner, last author Casaletto, And there are quite a few authors here that come from the United States, Sweden, the UK, and China, so quite a collaboration. This study looks at whether synaptic protein markers in the cerebrospinal fluid, which I'll be calling CSF, interact with the levels of neurofilament light, a common biomarker of exonal injury, and the extent of brain atrophy. The researchers predicted that greater levels of synaptic dysfunction markers in the CSF could modify the relationship between neurofilament light and brain atrophy. They used clinically normal adults from the Hillblum Aging Network study for this research. For synaptic markers in the CSF, they looked at synaptotagmin 1, SNAP25, neurogranin, and GAP43. And they also looked at common AD biomarkers in addition to neurofilament light. They also had participants complete longitudinal brain MRIs. Participants were evaluated at two time points, which were on average 2.6 years apart. They report many different results, but I'll just mention a few here. Authors found that higher baseline levels of neurofilament light correlated with accelerated atrophy of temporoparietal brain regions. When both neurofilament light and synaptic protein concentrations were high, this was associated with more atrophy of temporoparietal regions. However, when synaptic protein levels were low, this relationship was weaker. 
Abnormal levels of synaptic proteins seem to worsen various AD pathologies, including brain atrophy. This could thus become a new biomarker for AD to improve detection of this disorder at early stages. The last paper of today's show is about a potential new blood biomarker for AD. This one is called Blood D-Amino Acid Oxidase Levels Increased with Cognitive Decline Among People with Mild Cognitive Impairment, a two-year prospective study. There's just two authors, Lin and Lane, who are from institutions in Taiwan, and this is from the journal, the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology. Glutamatergic NMDA receptors have been implicated as playing a role in Alzheimer's disease. This paper focused on D-amino acid oxidase, an enzyme that degrades NMDA receptor-related D-amino acids. Previous studies had shown a relationship between levels of D-amino acid oxidase, or DAO, and cognitive decline in elderly adults. To go beyond this, the authors here explored the role of DAO levels in predicting the outcome for patients in early stages of AD in a two-year prospective study. They recruited 51 patients with mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, and 21 healthy controls for their study. The AD assessment scale, cognitive subscale, and the mini mental state exam were both used to assess cognitive function, while all participants also had serum levels of DAO analyzed. The healthy controls showed increased DAO over the two years, accompanied by reduced cognitive ability, but no change in the scores on the AD assessment scale. In the MCI group, or mild cognitive impairment group, a significant increase in DAO levels was found, as well as a decline in both cognitive tests, including the AD assessment scale. The levels of DAO and serum at 12 and 18 months could predict the extent of cognitive decline at 24 months for the MCI patients. Therefore, according to this study, DAO concentration in the blood could predict cognitive decline in those at risk for developing AD. Another potential new biomarker for us. And that's it. I told you it was going to be a short episode. That's actually maybe the shortest episode I've ever recorded. (laughs) If you're interested in exploring any of these papers in more detail, check the show notes on the app that you're listening to or at aminder.com to find the numbered bibliography for today's episode. So aminder.com is spelled A-M-I-N-D-R.com. If you liked today's episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a review and or a rating on the podcast app of your choice. On Apple Podcasts, you can leave reviews, for example, and on Spotify, you can leave a rating. These reviews really help us to reach more listeners that would benefit from the show, and it means a lot. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. And if you haven't yet, thank you in advance when you do. This episode was brought to you by our amazing team of volunteers. Our sorting team were the ones who divided all of the abstracts from August 2022 into bite-sized episodes for the month. I scripted, hosted, and edited today's episode. Anusha Kamesh reviewed and edited my script and reviewed my audio editing. And Laura Anbasi created the bibliography and the word cloud for today's episode. By the way, Anusha is our editing manager and Laura is our bibliography manager. So we really had the big guns working on this episode. Make sure to tune into the rest of the episodes in this series. We will have episodes being released every Monday and Wednesday until December 21st. Then we'll have a short break before coming back in January for our next series. 
We'll have to skip the month of September just due to low availability of our team members, but we'll be back fresh in the new year for October 2022 papers. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, if you're interested in joining the team, send an email to aminderpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We are most active on Twitter and Instagram, by the way. We're also going to be starting a Patreon page up and would like to offer perks to our members who join our Patreon. If you have any ideas for perks that you would think would be great to have, let us know. We always love to hear your feedback. And with that, I hope you have a great rest of your day and I will talk to you again soon.